Kia ora, welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Rhiannon, I'm a professional ballerina who is supposed to be performing in Munich right now, but is instead practicing her ballet in the kitchen. Now, on with the podcast. Kia ora Rhiannon, we wish you all the best with your practice. I'm Indira Stewart and welcome to the RNZ Coronavirus Podcast. It's the first day of the new lockdown schooling system. So later this episode, we're going to be talking to a school principal about what this means for educators and for parents. But first, let's get to the headlines. Yesterday, we saw four deaths from COVID-19. It's the highest number we've seen so far in one day, and it lifts our total toll to nine people. One of those deaths was the father of the groom from the Bluff Wedding Cluster. He was 86 years old and had been in intensive care for some time. Director General of Health Ashley Bloomfield says the remaining three people who died were all from the Rosewood Dementia Care Facility. We've previously signalled the underlying vulnerabilities of the Rosewood residents and that this group would continue to be at risk. That does not make today's news any less sad. This is the largest number of deaths we have reported on any day in New Zealand from COVID-19 and it is a sobering reminder of what is at stake here. I do want to acknowledge the families associated with these people who have passed and offer my sympathy and those I think of all New Zealanders and our support. But while the majority of deaths from COVID-19 have come from the Rosewood Rest Home, Dr Bloomfield says he's confident that other aged care facilities have the right systems in place to protect residents. We early on provided advice around um, ensuring nobody came to their facilities who had any respiratory symptoms at all. They put in place um, no visiting policies much sooner than we went into alert level four. Every new arrival into a age residential care facility goes into isolation for 14 days. There are no shared meals uh, happening in the facilities. Uh, I've asked all our DHBs to work with each of the facilities in their, uh, in their region to ensure they have good policies, procedures, that they have access to PPE that they need and good supply lines, and to identify what other support those facilities may need to help ensure we keep that high level of care and of preventing uh, uh, COVID-19 getting into those facilities. I have also um, uh, decided to uh, commission a review of the rest home facilities or the age residential care facilities where we have had cases because in some of those instances the uh, cases have been able to be bounded very quickly with no further transmission and others uh, we've seen just how tricky this virus is and that it can spread quite rapidly. The good news is the number of new cases is remaining low. Only 17 reported yesterday and only around 1-2% to of tests are coming back as positive for COVID-19. I think it's clear that we are past the peak under this alert level. The key information we're looking for now uh, is for each of those new cases, we want to know very quickly where have they come from. Uh, and if we can't immediately link them to an extent case or cluster, then we need to do a pretty forensic analysis and find out very quickly uh, where they've come from and, and have a very quick and, and close look at all the possible contacts there and put a ring fence around it. So yes, we've, we've passed the peak, that seems to be clear now. Um, 
we will be more confident once we know about each of those new cases that has been appearing, you know, really from the last week and as we go into this week. And also, if we continue to get reasonable testing rates uh, for, of people with any symptoms and we're still not finding additional cases, that will provide us with even greater level of assurance. We also got some sobering information about the economy yesterday. Here's the Finance Minister, Grant Robertson. Today the Treasury released a number of scenarios for the possible impact on the economy based on potential different times spent at different alert levels, the state of the global economy and the level of fiscal response from the government. They cover a wide range of scenarios based on previously released public health modelling and lead to a wide range of potential outcomes. This is a bit complex, so stick with me for a few minutes. These are scenarios rather than forecasts. So the Treasury isn't saying, based on an incredibly detailed model of the economy, we predict this will happen. Instead, they're saying, this is what might happen in different situations based on our best educated guesses. The Treasury created these scenarios using three main variables. First, how long do we stay at each alert level? Second, how much money is the government pumping into the economy? And third, what is happening in the global economy? Now first, let's look at the worst scenario. What happens if we stay under a level four lockdown for six months, then at level three for another six months, and the government doesn't inject any extra money into the economy? Well, in that scenario, the Treasury says the unemployment rate could rise as high as 26%. We haven't seen that level of unemployment for a very long time, not since the Great Depression of the 1930s. The good news is that it's not going to play out like that. The government has already signalled it plans to inject billions of dollars into the economy to avoid that kind of economic catastrophe and also because we don't expect to be under lockdown for that long. Well, it's not a scenario that I foresee at all, and certainly that level of unemployment would not be acceptable to me as the Minister of Finance, nor I'm sure to the Prime Minister. I simply don't see that scenario playing out, but it is a good indication of why it is so important that we stick to the rules and we emerge from Level 4 as soon as we possibly can. The whole point of a strategy of going hard and going early is so that we do not have prolonged periods um, as the Treasury has run scenarios on of being in lockdown. And we can see overseas countries that are in lockdown at the moment that are extending for very long periods of time. The reason we moved quickly was to avoid those situations. Other scenarios ask what happens if the government injects between 20 and 40 billion dollars into the economy and we only stay at levels three or four for a maximum of two to three months. This is more along the lines of what we actually expect to happen based on our current progress against the virus and on signals from the government. In those scenarios, unemployment spikes to around eight or nine percent over the next few months, then slides back to around five or six percent by early next year. Eight to nine percent is the best case, and it sounds good by comparison to 26 percent. But keep in mind that even during the height of the global financial crisis, unemployment was less than 7 percent. Even in the best case scenario, the economy is going to take a serious hit. How bad that hit is 
depends on how long we stay in lockdown, how much the government spends and how the rest of the world does. So what can you and I do about this? Well, follow the rules, maintain social distance, stick to your bubble, wash your hands, cough into your elbow, all those key public health messages we keep repeating. All the worst economic scenarios are based on the assumption that the four-week lockdown fails and has to be significantly extended. If we want to avoid that, we all need to do the best we can to play our part and stick to the rules. Term 2 begins today with schools across the country implementing distance learning, a significant part of which will be online. Of course, there are many kids who can't access the internet from home, so the Ministry of Education has sent out hard copy home learning packs throughout Aotearoa. It's also working to send out laptops and tablets and to organise internet connections for the students who don't have them. The Ministry has also set up two new TV channels, which will broadcast six and a half hours of educational content every weekday, starting today. I spoke to Sosa Annandale, who is the principal of Russell School in Porirua. She says while caregivers might feel overwhelmed by this new system, educators are gearing up to support them. We need to make this less stressful and we need to keep things really clear and very simple so it doesn't add stress to parents' lives. They're not teachers. We are. It should just be really simple, straightforward um, messages and in terms of the online learning, you know, there are platforms, all schools use, you know, platforms and there are various um, platforms that, that, say in a place like ours, we use, you know, Google, we're Google Classroom, so we use Harpara, which is a teacher dashboard and teachers do online learning through that. Uh, we have Seesaw, which is an app that's used, you know, a lot in a lot of schools that connects us. Um, with learning with home. So, they, you know, like schools were already there. I mean, some some schools will have been forced much. Some of us would be in varying, if you, you know, if you looked at a, a scale from one to ten, there'll be, there'll be schools all over that scale. And there'll be some who haven't done a lot of online learning. And then there, there are those that'll dip their toes in. And then there'll be those who have run away. And that's, that's how they live their life. A lot of it's online and doing a lot of online stuff. In terms of the challenges of online distance learning, when mm-hmm. you talk about, in, in the situations where there are kids with behavioural disorders, for example, yep. ADHD, mm-hmm. um, those who need, those are the kinds of kids who need extra assistance in class, they may have the support of a, of a teacher aid there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But do you have any concerns about how they're going to be able to cope um, learning independently at home? Yeah, um, there's a there's a little bit of a worry there about some of that. But as I pointed out to you, you know, home is not school. These are their parents. They are not teachers. And I don't, well, my expectation is that the teachers will not be sending home work that's really unmanageable, that actually requires a teacher's instruction. So we have to be very mindful. That's why I said we need to, we know our learners, that's number one, that not we can't have a generic one size fits all approach to this and you know we we spend a lot of time like as the leaders and I we've had 
what was yesterday, three meetings. I've had a whole staff meeting, everything online. We've had lots of phone calls, lots of toing and froing with emails. So, you know, it's a high level of communication amongst ourselves, but we just need to be really robust in what we're sending out to homes, what messages we're giving them and what our expectations are. So that obviously includes where children um, have English as their second language or their parents have English as their second language. That's a huge portion of our school. So I'll, I'll give you another example, okay? So, you know, probably some of the Pacifica stuff, I can tap into, you know, I know that community really, really well in terms of the actual um, NGOs and who's attached. But we also have some refugee families. And so, you know, I'm worried particularly about our Syrian families because, you know, the, the mums are, you know, the families are at home, their English is very limited. So, so what I've done is for them I've accessed, we had a, a, a support staff member who was um, Arabic speaking. We're going to approach her to see if she would um, do some comms for us, you know, even just phone calls and, you know, and then I'll sort out how to fix her up with some some pay for that. Um, And then that way we know that there's somebody who's... And she knows the school really well and she knows the kids. So it's all about relationships with the parents. And so she already has a relationship with this small group of parents and um, hopefully she'll she'll take that up and and, um, we're able to connect with them and it's... It's fruitful, and they can the kids can continue to thrive at home. It's really important. So, so it sounds like uh, this this challenge of online distance learning, um, yep. even if the lockdown the e- the restrictions are eased, obviously schools will continue um, po- possibly to be closed yep. and kids will be learning from home. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like this is really going to be a community wide approach you know you're using the resources that you have among your parents as well Mm -hmm. with the lady Mm -hmm. that speaks Arabic and that's awesome that you have her as a resource so this Mm -hmm. is going to be a thing about everyone pulling together absolutely stronger together so you know as the leaders and I and the teachers were talking yesterday online we were talking about you know what are the components that are really really important because we don't want to go over the top and overwhelm our parents you know we don't need all those programs with bells and whistles we just need to focus on what's really important and that is relationships and that is including parents' relationships with your children. So it's looking for ways to use what we call in our school takaro, which is play-based learning. And what are some great simple activities that we do every single day that include literacy, oral language and maths? And I can think of millions of them from preparing a meal to hanging your washing out, you know. So sorting out problems for kids to solve, this is maths problems, but looking at, we were talking about this yesterday, you know, we talk a lot about cultural context and the maths that we um, use at Russell School. And I said to them, look, here's a prime opportunity to use home context and cultural context because they'll be at home. You know, how many pegs are we going to need to hang out all the T-shirts today? There's just so much that we can do and that parents are doing automatically as parents so let's not complicate it by making them do school teacher work that they're not capable of so what we said is teachers are going to be available between nine and midday and that's when they'll be online and engaged with the learners online or available for um, parents to contact them so through seesaw is a really good one because a lot of our parents are, are locked into seesaw and are already using that app. So, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to have conversations, to ask questions, to clarify for the kids as well. And it's been, the teachers have said it's been fantastic because, you know, they're talking to kids. They're already doing all the phone calls because these are all the phone calls of the last week or so. Um, 
really enjoying that contact with home and having that space to actually call and have conversations. You know, and for me, it's not just about the parents. I've got to think about teachers and and teacher aides. And so, you know, trying to stay connected with them, um, not just online, but through actual phone calls and um, conversations. I've worked some pretty pretty normal long hours this school holidays thus far. Um, And I think we need to acknowledge all the teachers in every school out there who's doing the same. They're working really, really hard. And don't forget, they've got children and family commitments as well. So a teacher who's a solo parent with three or four kids, their output is going to be very different. And what online learning and supporting kids, other kids' learning is going to be very different from uh, the person who doesn't have any children at all and um, is in a really sort of a nice little, oh, take me as an example, a nice little bubble of one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're expecting though, uh, whatever your situation is as a teacher or a parent or your or a family mm. in your community, everybody is going to be understanding and work together on this. I'll try really hard to get that, and how you do that, like I said, is through you know, like we've agreed on what our platforms are with communication. We have a Facebook page, we have a text message system where I can text and an email system where I can text out to parents, and so it's about as I said, the relationship and the connectivity between us and them. Just trying to think of things that lessen the stress level. And and just one more point point to, <laughs> yeah, um, I sure. want to go on because I was really interested in, in what you said about this is a good time for home learning um, with cultural context, home context. Yep. So yep. so is that a, that's a bit of an encouragement for parents who think, well, I've never had any homeschool experience teaching my kids that I don't know how I'm going to even start. So that's quite an encouragement for them to know that to start with how you're living at home. Absolutely. 101. There's just so much you do at home already, and it's about highlighting that to the parents and reassuring them that they don't have to be teachers. Thanks for the encouragement, Saucer Annandale. That's all from us this week. Remember to send in your thoughts and questions through the RNZ Vox Pop app. We'll be back with you tomorrow, but until then, be kind. Kia homaru, kia kaha. Mā te wā. The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me, Indira Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Jesse Chang and Sonia Sly. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere and it's free. Just go to the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. While you're there, check out RNZ's other excellent podcast. For more on how New Zealand's economy is weathering the COVID storm, check out our business podcast, Two Cents Worth.